coming up. How do I invest in the whole ecosystem and make it so that there are more people who are doing more innovative stuff that I can support rather than thinking about my job is to come up with the next big thing myself. Hello, and thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Evolve Innovation, the podcast where innovation leaders across industries discuss the pain points associated with accelerating change in their fields. Evolve Innovation is produced by Orange Sparkleball, an innovation accelerator focused on moving organizations' initiatives forward. We run pilots that demonstrate the future state and create multifaceted communication strategies to move entire bodies of work forward. Evolve Innovation is co-convened by SwitchPitch, led by our good friend Michael Goldstein. SwitchPitch is an online platform comprising a global startup database and innovation funnel management tools that align startups to business and innovation initiatives. As members of the innovation ecosystem, we have observed the need for better communication between innovators across industries struggling with similar problems, but working in silos. We created Evolve to establish a community where we can have an open dialogue about innovation pain points and create a network where everyone can learn and grow from each other's insights. This podcast is available on our website at evolveinnovation.co and on every major podcast streaming platform. Check out our other podcasts for more valuable insights from industry experts. This episode, our Evolve guests are Tiffany Murray and Ben Garrett. Tiffany is a good friend and Evolve Steering Committee member who leads product innovation for Verizon Business Group. Tiffany is an innovation veteran who will be in conversation with Ben Garrett, the innovation programming and operations manager of the hatchery. Orange Sparkle Ball was lucky enough to hear Ben speak during the inaugural 2021 Rollins Innovation Summit which we co-hosted with Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health at the Hatchery Center for Innovation. Ben has a wealth of information and handy references for innovators, and we are thrilled to bring him into the Evolve Innovation Network with this podcast so you all can benefit as we have from knowing Ben. Hey, thanks so much, Ashley. Really excited to be here with everyone today and particularly excited to be in conversation with Ben. We had a chance to connect ahead of this, introduced by the lovely folks at Orange Sparkle Ball. Uh, I, I know that Ben uh, was in person with Orange Sparkle Ball and company a, a few weeks ago to facilitate a conversation with some innovators in the Atlanta area where the hatchery and Ben are. Um, so we're really excited to be able to expose the information Ben shared there to a wider audience. Uh, we're going to be talking today a little bit about about navigating the unknown, which is something that when you're in an innovation role, you need to become more comfortable with, even though it is challenging. And Ben has uh, has done a lot of research in this field. I want to start off, Ben, by understanding a little bit about how you got to know the materials that you're going to speak about today. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Ashley just did a, a, an introduction to your background, but um, as a way of, of, of teeing up the materials we'll talk about today, you know, how did you start to get familiar with some of these topics and, you know, where, what's your perspective? Where are you coming from on this? Absolutely. Uh, well, and first of all, just thanks to the Ball Network uh, for giving me this opportunity. Tiffany, thanks for being uh, a conversation partner with me uh, this afternoon. So 
my background really revolves a lot around the nonprofit sector and particularly the community development nonprofit sector at first. And so that was about understanding what was happening in different communities that were under-resourced or under-invested in and partnering with the folks who lived in those communities to understand what their experiences were like, what their goals were and what they hoped for their community, and then building different kinds of solutions um, to help them to achieve those goals, whether that was bringing in different kinds of resources, maybe establishing new kinds of programs, um, helping to facilitate partnerships between different kinds of institutions in those communities. But it was all really driven by trying to gain a deep, nuanced understanding of what was happening in that community for the people who live there and what really mattered to them. In that work, I kept finding myself in newer organizations that were doing that work. And so that's sort of where the innovation piece of my my interest really kicked in as I sort of recognized, like, I, I keep doing new stuff. Uh, and so I decided I'd like to get better at doing new stuff. And there are people who uh, consistently create new things or support people who are creating new things. And so I sort of transitioned from the nonprofit community development space to the social enterprise uh incubator and accelerator space. And so then I was working with social entrepreneurs and helping them to bring new innovative things into the world and sort of building my own toolkit around how to uh, find sustainable business models for that kind of social change. Uh, And again, a lot of that really revolved around this listening and empathizing work of who are the different stakeholders who are involved in this effort, what is valuable to them? What are they trying to accomplish? And how do we create companies, institutions, programs, product services, whatever, that uh, helps people to achieve their goals? Um, and so that's really my, my experience or where I'm coming from on this. And the hatchery where I'm working now is just sort of the next stage of that, of taking what I have learned from those experiences Uh, and trying to support student innovators and what they are trying to develop. And then also through various internship programs, which we'll probably talk about today, um, trying to create an environment where students can be innovative. And so both working as an innovator myself, coming up with new programs and services for the Emory community, but then really making a space and equipping students to also be innovators uh, and giving them the tools, resources, and uh, sort of like environment that they need to do their own innovation work. Wonderful. What are those, if you can can paint a broad view of kind of the topics we'll be stepping through today, what are some of the tools that you use to help students create that environment? um, And why are they so important in this space? Absolutely. So um, one that I have already touched on, uh, even in this description, is this concept of rigorous empathy. And so for when I say that, what I mean is gaining a deep, nuanced, sufficiently complex understanding of an audience that you are designing something for or with. Um, And so the empathy piece is that understanding. What is this person's experience? What are they trying to accomplish? What are the roadblockers to those those objectives? 
the rigorous piece is um, doing so in a systematic way and doing so particularly in an evidence-based way. And so we, when as designers, as innovators, we, we bring our own set of experiences to any problem. We bring our own set of biases to any problem. And so we need to have really intentional ways of checking those biases um, and making sure that we are bringing the parts of our experience and expertise that are the most relevant to a particular audience. Uh, and so we need different kinds of processes and mindsets and exercises to gather evidence in a rigorous and systematic way to check our own biases and make sure that we're creating something that really matters and makes a difference to our audience. The other value that is really important is psychological safety. And psychological safety is about creating an environment where a group of human beings feels comfortable essentially experimenting and failing with each other um, and this is not like a nice to have for innovation work. This is a fundamental requirement because when humans don't feel safe, it is essentially impossible for us to actually innovate. We can be reactive and sometimes we can get out of sticky situations based on reflex. But if what we're talking about is aligning our work with our values, thinking strategically, thinking long-term, our brains are designed to not do those things if we feel like we are in danger. And so creating a space where people feel non-anxious is sort of the necessary, in some ways, biological bedrock of doing innovation work. And so I think that rigorous empathy is process. And then the psychological safety is the environment that you're trying to create for that process to run in. Awesome. Okay, let's break those both down and take them one at a time and dive mm -hmm. into those a little bit. Um, so with the rigorous empathy, you talked about, you know, biases that the innovator might bring into the process. You know, what are some of the other downsides of not having that rigorous empathy in that innovation process? Um, have you have you ever created something that you thought was going to solve a solution without, you know, or, or seeing this done? Um, without really tapping into that community aspect or, or really understanding what that customer dilemma is and had it not work out as you thought. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and I, I think like, I definitely want to like double click on like, what does not work mean? And I think like, I think that really gets at the risk of not doing rigorous empathy, which is creating something, investing a significant amount of time, maybe a significant amount of money and energy into something that people don't want. Like that is the risk of not doing rigorous empathy uh, is putting something out into the world that not only was no one asking for, but they are not going to use. Um, and so in thinking about uh, my own work uh, and things that I have created that did not have the uptake that I thought they would, uh, one example is, trying to run a, a digital conference. And uh, there, there was moments where I was trying to engage in empathy for sure with different audiences and trying to understand, well, what platform should we use? And what time of day is best? And what's the flow of registration, all those things. Um, and so did a lot of question, a lot of question asking uh, and then launched this digital conference 
and had probably 25% of the participation that I had anticipated. Um, and I think in some ways I was guilty of not making my empathy rigorous enough. Uh, I was asking a lot of people a lot of stuff about what they, what they would do or what they would like. And that's a trap we kind of fall into sometimes as innovators is, is asking people, would you do something in the future? People are typically not super good at predicting their future behavior. And so the better practice, the more rigorous practice is asking people about present behavior or past behavior and aligning what you're doing into that incumbent behavior, because the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so that was definitely an example where I, yeah, I did not do my empathy work as rigorously as I know I should have done. And I got a result that was less than what I hoped it would be. Do you have any hypotheses around, you know, what the audience was looking for? Were you able to get any feedback afterward as far as like what could, you could have done differently in that, that project? Yeah. So um, what I could have done differently is not offer another digital experience during a pandemic when everyone is on their computers all of the time. <laughs> uh, and I think no matter how much people said, oh, this kind of experience would be different and valuable. I just think the reality was, is that it would have been almost impossible to have created an experience like this that was digital in an environment where people are already spending eight hours a day staring at their computer screens. And so asking them to show up from six to eight or six to nine at night when they've already been on their computer all day long for multiple days, I just don't, the evidence was that they were not interested in that. <laughs> That makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. And in some of the work that I've done with, you know, other groups, women in product, the the folks that I were convening the event, we were feeling that burnout. You know, we mm. had the bias of, I don't want to do another digital event. This is not something that um, it, it makes sense to me at this, at this juncture in time through the pandemic. But when we pulled our, surveyed our audience, they were looking for a chance to connect and, and network but then also hear some, you know, from people in a way to advance their career. So they were getting a lot of nine to five type work calls. Um, mm -hmm. And there was that digital burnout, but different mm -hmm. from my experience or for the other uh, folks that were convening these events where we were just like, not another, not another digital event. Um, <laughs> our audience was actually asking for that. And so, you know, I think mm -hmm. that, that polling can be useful. And in some of these cases, you have these really small sample sizes. How, how do you see um, a, a small sample si size and your own bias and like combine, where do you draw the line for that rigor and, and the empathy? And I know it's, yeah. it's both an art and a science, and obviously you're kind of feeling these things out, but is there a way to kind of test your hypotheses um, in a rigorous way in small measures? So as sure. you're going along? No, that's a great question. And it is, it, it is that like weird art science hybrid. I think it's sort of cool to think in terms of a spectrum of basically the more clearly defined your audience is, the smaller the sample size can be. And then the less defined your audience gets, the larger your sample size ha has to be. There's been some really interesting research um, that I first encountered in the book Sprint that was looking at if you have a very clearly defined audience, like multiple demographic factors identified, 
you start to see diminishing returns of like information after a sample size of eight, which seems like astonishingly small, but it's like, if, if you have, if you're talking to the right people and you're asking consistent questions, the themes will emerge or they won't in about eight people. And after eight, you just hear the same thing over and over again, because those people are sufficiently similar to each other that the stuff is there or it's not. Um, And then the the less we know about who our audience even is, then the larger our sample size has to be. And in some ways, that larger sample size is to figure out actually who is the audience. And sort of from that big subset, identifying within smaller subsets that do have things in common to then really focus on. So it is kind of mushy, but I I find that general rule of thumb of the more specific you are about who you are, your audience is, the smaller the sample size can be, the more general it's time to start expanding that sample size. That's super helpful. Uh, let's jump into the psychological safety aspect of mm-hmm. you know, working in this space. Uh, when you're working with a team at the hatchery, when you have new students coming on board, how do you foster that environment? It, you know, mm-hmm. Is there a matrix that you use, for example? Um, <laughs> Uh, we haven't talked about this or set this up before, um, mm-hmm. but you know, h- how do you work <laughs> on creating that environment of psychological safety for your team? Absolutely. So one of the first conversations that we have with students involves one, telling them that um, we hired you because we believe that you are competent and can do this job. So if you find yourself at any point confused or stuck, uh, not knowing what to do, let us know because our assumption will not be, oh, you student are dumb and incompetent. You should know what you're doing. Our assumption is you are competent. And if you are stuck, that is because we, as your managers, have not equipped you with the information or resources that you need to execute your job. And so we want to establish this like baseline of like trust and competence that if stuff is going wrong, it's not because of something about you. It's about something that's happening with us as a team that we can fix. And so that's one of the sort of like beginning things that we start with all of our interns. Another thing is that we we're very transparent with our interns about the values that animate our work. And so we'll walk through these are values that we have. Uh, for our work. And we ask students, add to them. What do you think of these? Are there ones that are important to you that animate the way that you work and put them on the board? And so now we have this like really fun, wild, like values board of like multiple iterations of interns adding to it um, that I think creates a sense of of shared understanding of this is how we're going to treat each other. Um, And then communicating that you can hold us accountable to these values. And so if, if you see us moving away from these shared values, let us know because that's how we're going to keep group cohesion and keep doing challenging and new things based on the, these shared values. So those are two things. And uh, you mentioned the matrix. Uh, and so that that's more of a background thing, but um There's a really fantastic book called Radical Candor by, I believe it's Kim Scott. And she, uh, there's also a great YouTube video, um, Radical Candor, where she talks through some of these key concepts. But um, basically, 
when she is talking about creating psychological safety, creating uh, a space where people can communicate clearly and effectively with each other, she thinks about that in terms of how clear is it to the person you're communicating to that you care about them personally? And then how directly are you communicating what you want to communicate? And the idea is the more a person feels like you care about them and the more clearly you are saying what you mean, the more likely you are to see growth, change, um, and innovation. If a person feels like you don't care about them and you're really, really direct with them, they're just going to think that you're a jerk. Um, if a person feels like you really, really care about them, but you don't ever communicate clearly with them about what is happening, honestly, it's just going to make people nervous um, because they're going to be like, you never tell me when things are like going wrong. I know sometimes things are not right. And I'm really scared that I don't know when that is. And so I would like actually appreciate it if you really do care about me to communicate like what's going well and what's not going well, because I don't want to wake up in a situation where all of a sudden I find out all these things are wrong, but you never told me about them. Um, And so making sure to, um, yeah, communicate. I care about you as a, as a person, as a colleague, as a coworker, and also, you know, what I think about things is sort of the key ingredients to that radical candor and like feelings of psychological safety that genuinely allow for growth rather than stagnation. There's so much good information there. And I you know, was hoping that for our audience, maybe we could unpack some of that with an example. When we, we talked previously, you mentioned uh, an example of a student that was both a, a great example of applying rigorous empathy and of being able to demonstrate that environment of psychological safety and what that might allow the student to do. Could you talk through that example a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a, an internship program that we run in the summers where the goal of the program is for the student to do innovation work for a specific business challenge that the hatchery is facing or a particular business objective that we have and wanting the student to make recommendations about what the hatchery ought to be doing. One of those internships had to do with a certificate program. So basically we had a hypothesis that if we attach badges or certificates or things like that to hatchery programs, students would be more interested in those programs. And so we wanted this intern to explore that for us. And so um, at the same time, we knew that was a pretty specific hypothesis. Like that basically has a yes or no answer and is maybe not the most interesting question to ask. And so we wanted the student to feel uh, empowered to really explore the environment and ask big questions um, and be willing to push back on us that basically and say, that's not really the right question to even be asking. And so sure enough, when that intern was interviewing students, putting out polls, um, creating MVPs, what she found was certificates and badges were kind of like a take it or leave it thing for students. She was asking really interesting questions about what's the most valuable learning experience you've ever had? What made that a really valuable learning experience? Tell me about a time you went above and beyond on a school project. Why did you do that? What did that look like? Uh, And so what what we heard from that 
was actually the thing that really made the difference to students is learning opportunities that allowed them to take what they were learning in the classroom and apply it to real world, like social or community challenges. And so that learning basically got baked into one of our like signature programs that we have run both years that we've been open and continue to run and like scale in the future, which was let's work with an academic partner, let's work with a community partner, and let's create experiences where students are taking what they're learning and applying them to serve their community. Um, and so, but a lot of that came from one, the student was very bright, but also uh, intentionally creating an environment where we're open to pushback. The question that we're asking may not be the right question. If you find data that that's the case, tell us. Um, if you want to really expand the scope of your empathy work, tell us, like, tell us why, let's do it. Um, and so I think that's a good example of her amazing, like rigorous empathy work uncovered really fascinating stuff. And I think that we did a good job of creating an environment where she felt comfortable to pursue things that weren't necessarily um, in the brief from the get-go. Absolutely. One of the things I love about the way you think about creating that environment of psychological safety is um, that you've made this decision to believe in the person that you hired and resource them appropriately for the job you want them to do. How do you deal with constrained resources? Um, if, if you want to, you know, certainly in an academic environment, perhaps you don't have an unlimited budget um, or the number of heads that you need to, you know, dive into something. You know, how do you think about that when you're trying to adequately resource someone to do this big visionary uh, exploration they want to do? Yeah, so I think... There are two things. Uh, one is I find it helpful, at least for me, this may not be helpful for other people, but I find it helpful to think a little bit of a reframe of like a constrained budget at a large institution versus a misallocated budget at a large institution. Um, so I, I'm sure for many of the institutions uh, that folks here work for, um, certainly where I work, the problem is not exactly that there's not a lot of money. Uh, Emory is a, a very well uh, supported institution. It's not a shortage of funds. Uh, it is where those funds are allocated that creates the challenge. And so I think about, instead of thinking about, oh, there's not enough money to go around. For me, it's about how do I make a case to reallocate that money to things that from my vantage point, there is evidence to suggest that that's a strategic reallocation of funds. And I, that reframe helps me. Um, related to that is, in, I think as innovators, we imagine uh, rolling out from the get-go the most robust, perfect version of our innovative idea. And we wish that we could launch with all the bells and whistles in place from day one. And so we see ourselves as resource constrained because no one is giving us the resources to do that. Um, and while I empathize with that, um, I think the approach that we try to take here is what are the experiments that we can run with the resources that we have right now that make a case for further resources to come our way towards the fully featured thing. And so we think about sort of stacking 
small experiments that don't require much funding on top of each other to accumulate evidence for basically the next experiment to happen. And eventually we will get to the point where the next experiment looks a whole lot like the thing that we initially wanted to roll out. And the other thing too is, at least for for me, the fully featured perfect thing doesn't exist anyway. Even that is an experiment. And that helps me to feel better about rolling out something that's a little bit smaller because the, the thing I want to roll out isn't perfect anyway. Like even in like my dream version vision of whatever this thing is, it's not perfect. Parts of it will be broken or squeaky and I would need to experiment to fix it anyway. So I may as well start doing some work now that helps me to iron out some of those things with small resources so that I can prove uh, that there's value here. So I can get a slightly smaller set of resources or slightly larger set of resources and so on and so on and so on. And so I think it's about like right-sizing for experiments and stacking experiments to get to the thing that you really want to roll out. Yeah, I love I love that idea and that mindset. You, when we spoke before, you talked a little bit about, you know, extending that to try not to hoard resources so that when you're mm-hmm. reallocating resources to what's truly innovative, you're helping, you know, perhaps within a large organization, another piece of that organization see, you know, a way that they might be able to use their budget for something that is more innovative and so using other people's budget or business as a way of expanding what you're doing through experimentation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that idea. Um, and it gets to something else that we spoke about around thinking about the full innovation ecosystem. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about the interconnectedness of what you do as an innovator and your ecosystem that you're trying to build? Absolutely. So. Um... I think two pieces. One is that, yeah, I, I like the way that you said not hoarding the resources because I think like that's exactly right. I, and I think it's helpful to think about, um, especially if you're in an innovation function in an, an institution, there, one way to think about that is I, I'm the innovator. I am the one who must come up with the innovations and, and drive forward the good ideas. Another way to think about that function, as Tiffany, you were talking about, is like, I'm a facilitator of other people solving really important problems using innovation. And my goal is to help the institution reallocate resources to innovative stuff that really, really makes a difference for the whole institution. And I think that in some ways that cell is easier because who doesn't want to have resources reallocated to them? Um, and also, um, again, it's that rigorous empathy piece of I'm, I want to understand what's happening where I work. Uh, I want to understand the problems and goals that matter here. I want to understand the people who are coming up with innovative solutions to those problems. And I want to support those people as they build out their institutions and, or their innovations. And so I think that's a different mindset. Um, that I think can be really helpful, especially for sustaining an innovation function, um, because it's about the whole institution instead of about one function or one person being super innovative. And that relates to this ecosystem idea. So the way this works at, at Emory is that um, the hatchery exists to serve all Emory students. So that's grad, undergrad, 
whatever school discipline students are working in, we are here to support them. And so what that means uh, is that the more students who are interested in innovation, the bigger the hatchery's potential audience is. And so we have a vested interest in more students getting interested in innovation and students are getting interested in, in innovation from all different kinds of places across Emory. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be the hatchery's job to get everyone interested in innovation. Part of the hatchery's job can be to support the other places on campus where students are encountering big problems that need innovative solutions and getting that spark. And so I think in an innovation function in any institution, having that mindset of how, what is the whole ecosystem? What would it mean to invest in the innovation ecosystem of this whole place is a really helpful and strategic mindset to take on. The, the case study example that you and I talked about earlier, Tiffany, was uh, there's this really great long read article called Stripe is Thinking Like a Civilization. And it looked at Stripe's somewhat strange practice of investing in direct competitors to their business. And there's a couple of good reasons for doing this. Uh, one of them is so that they know what their competitors are doing because they're investors. The other thing though, that is that by having more companies be involved in the online uh, payments ecosystem industry, the whole ecosystem is growing, which is growing Stripe's potential audience um, and so is also good for Stripe. And so I think we as innovators can take a similar approach of understanding how do I invest in the whole ecosystem and make it so that there are more people who are doing more innovative stuff that I can support rather than thinking about my job is to come up with the next big thing myself. Absolutely. I think that's so important, especially when we're working in technologies that are emerging that, you know, we want to be able to support an entire ecosystem so that that entire audience grows that can benefit from whatever it is that we're working on. A lot of these technologies or solutions, if you're in more of a community innovation space, um, are nascent. And by investing in the ecosystem, we see the work of all, the rising tide rises all ships, I guess. Mm -hmm. The innovation ecosystem is an abundance economy. Uh, we have a couple of questions from the audience, um, and then we can, you know, take take more directly. Um, but our friend Gary is asking about, in terms of psychological safety, um, when you know, how do you think about the approach of always bring a solution to a problem you've identified? So when you're working with students and they're out there talking with, um, you know, the their user base, um, and they've identified a problem. Um, you know, do you encourage them to come in with a solution to that problem? And, and how do you kind of coach them through that? Mm, that's a really interesting question. So uh, I will say um, from, from my perspective of coming with solutions, um, th there are times where I have gotten feedback from our interns uh, that they wish that I would uh, basically micromanage them more. <laughs> of I, I, I challenge them to come up with their own solutions to the challenges that they're facing. Uh, and so they'll ask, you know, they'll ask questions of, well, how, how would we do something like that? I'll be, I don't know, how would you do something like that? And I, I think that uh, in, in that sort of like management role, I think that it is like healthy and appropriate um, 
and empowering to give people the opportunity to develop solutions to the problems that they are seeing instead of as a manager needing to be the one who has all the answers and knows how to solve all the problems. From the student perspective, the students developing solutions to problems is very much what those internships are about. Um, and we, we want them to develop solutions. At the same time, we want them to practice rigorous empathy uh, and not lead with solutions uh, and not come in with a predetermined conception of what the solution will be. And so we sort of think about like um, having moments of empathy where you step back and your solution is, um, is background. No one even knows what it is. But then you have moments where you step forward and you offer an interpretation of what you have heard in your empathy and at that point can offer us solutions. And so I think that it's a, it's a both and and having processes in place um, like human-centered design or lean startup or things like that help to sort of balance. This is the time to engage in listening and empathy. And then this is the time to have a solution ready to go uh, and being intentional about which time is which rather than all one or all the other. As students are getting familiar with some of those concepts like human-centered design and lean startup, you know, how do you work through coaching them on deploying that art versus science and you know, trying to figure out when someone you're working with could use a little bit more guidance or coaching from you. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm sure it's, it's more of a feel than, um, you know, there's, there are key indicators where you always jump in, but just curious how you think about it when you're coaching a student. Yeah. So um, particularly with our interns, we, uh, there's actually like a decent bit of structure in terms of mapping out your internship X number of weeks long. Uh, so this weeks through four, those are focused on empathy. Weeks four and five are focused on problem. Week six and, and so there is a we build the intern the internship itself around the processes that we're trying to teach students. So they essentially learn the process by doing it sort of stretched out over time. Um, And a lot of what we do is just, we ask for rough drafts of the different deliverables at each stage in order to create opportunities for coaching. So it's sort of, we explain what the deliverable is. We ask for a student to send us a rough draft of that deliverable. And then we talk about what of that deliverable is on target and then what of that deliverable to tweak And then they sort of turn in uh, more or less a final draft of that part of the process. Um, And so we we create structure around the whole thing. And then we create intentional checkpoints to help students uh, to sort of bring in the best of the best practices in their actual work. Um, And so we have no clue where things are going to end up, but we have a pretty structured way of how we're going to get to the unknown thing that they're going to propose. That makes sense. Uh, Do we want to turn it over to question and answer with everybody now, Ashley? Sorry, find the unmute button here. (laughs) 
No worries. Yes, we absolutely can can open it up to questions. If anybody in the audience has has anything, Ben, thank you so much. You have said so many amazing things. I know, Gary, did we answer your questions effectively? And then anybody else who wants to either drop something in the chat or feel free to unmute at this point and, uh, and ask your questions in real time. Hey, Ash, this is Gary. Uh, yes, my, my question was answered. Um, uh, so I think, Ben, a question that I have, you know, when you were talking about um, setting a time for rigorous empathy, uh, I feel like one of the challenges our team feels, uh, <laughs> you know, Ashley and Megan, they work so closely with us. So I wonder if they would agree with the statement that we facilitate innovation versus uh, in our partnership with the organization at Chick-fil-A. We're more of a facilitator, except for an area that uh, specific bodies of work where we take the lead. But in general, we are a facilitator of innovation. Uh, with that being said, I think that many times um, as a team, we run into uh, a challenge where uh, the teams we work with, not all of them, but some of them are stuck on, I need more data. I need more data. I need to understand more. I need to refine what I think I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at some point we're like, hey, there's only so much you can whiteboard. There's only so much um, white papers and research you can do before you have to test it and break it. Because I I would even argue when you did that digital conference that you feel wasn't as, as, uh, I don't know, it didn't draw the audience that you were hoping for. I think in some ways you needed to test it again within the budget and resources and constraints that you had to find Mm -hmm. that out, right? And so I feel like, hey, we continue down this path. um, We're only... Uh, what is it postponing a moment of whether we find out there's something here or there isn't. So um, I'm just curious, like if, as you talk to students or consultants, business professionals, they come knocking your door and talking about, Hey, there's a cycle. I want to kick my teammates, my organization out of like, what are some of the things you've seen work or, or conversation you've seen that have been helpful in terms of moving that, uh, that action forward? Mm-hmm. No, it's such a great question. And I think you're not alone in seeing the hesitation around sort of like some kind of launch or test. Um, and I, I think a lot of that is, is fear of failure. It's like, well, if we test it, we might find that we were wrong. Uh, and that is scary to do especially in a professional environment where we're, we're used to feeling like it's not okay to be wrong here. Um, and so there, there's the, the setting of the like expectations around, again, this like psychological safety of like, it's not only is it okay to be wrong, we would prefer for you to create situations where you are like occasionally wrong and do that on purpose because it is helpful to learn why you were wrong. And you're totally right, Gary. Like, the, the next right step for that, that conference would be to tweak it and test it again. Um, and so um, one thing I, I find helpful is um, we actually sort of do a hybrid uh, of our innovation process is, is human-centered design and lean matched together. Um, so my opinion is that human-centered design is incredible at the empathize 
problem definition and ideation and brainstorming phase. And then I wish that human-centered design, at least the way that it's commonly taught, was more rigorous and specific about what prototyping and testing mean and how to do them. And I think that lean startup is much more rigorous and focused on the prototype and test phase. And so that's kind of what we do is we do human-centered design first three stages, and then we attach the lean approach to prototyping and experimentation to that. Um, And so what we try to do is basically uh, we'll do different kinds of challenges around, well, what's a thing that you could do this week to test whether this hypothesis is a valid one or not? Um, And it doesn't have to be big and public and fancy. Like you don't have to draw a lot of attention to yourself. It might just be you make a landing page and email it to four people and see if they click what you think that they're going to click. Like you can make up a brand um, and send people just to see if they're interested in that. Um, Sometimes a test is text 10 people a specific question about, have you ever paid for this kind of service before? If you did, how much did you pay for it? Um, And so like really breaking it, helping people to break down what is the hypothesis that you really need to test? And then what is the cheapest in terms of time, cost, brand, et cetera, way to validate or invalidate that hypothesis? And I think that that cheapness can help to downregulate people's anxiety and get over that hump of it's too scary to launch and test something. It's like, well, what, what would be the not scary way to launch and test this? And let's do that so that we can keep moving forward. And so I, I think that lean startup approach of like minimum viable product. And when we say minimum, we mean minimum, 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 like let's do that quickly so we can keep moving. I'd, I'd be curious, Gary, like if that is the sort of thing you're already doing, and maybe that's not scratching the the itch, or if that feels like it might hit the mark. Uh, I think Ben, in, in the spirit of what you were talking about of like, um, Hey, we did some rigorous empathy, which uh, I think I need to read whatever it is you've written on that too. Cause I think there's a lot there. Uh, but you know, once we're done with that or not when we're done, as we're in that phase defining, cause we have a center of excellence that undergrids undergirds everything that we do. And we follow steps to make sure we move quickly, but we don't drop any balls. Mm-hmm. And I think that there almost needs to be an emphasis on, hey, you are knocking on our team's door to pilot a certain technology. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, that may uh, seem scary to you. What is a sandboxed, uh, in far less uh, dangerous MVP that um, I'm almost hearing, I'm almost imagining like MV, uh, M, uh, multiple even MVPs mm-hmm. that make them feel like there's wins before you start exposing yourself more, or at least they feel that like they're exposing themselves through a more uh, a visible pilot when we're mm-hmm. testing something in the field. And uh, I think that's something I need to chew on that to think about how that would uh, be applicable to our team. Mm. Well, a great resource for that too is... Um... Um, I think that it might be the, how I built this podcast where it was an HBR podcast where they, they interviewed Warby Parker about, uh, risk management 
And uh, basically the Warby Parker founder is like, oh, we're the most risk averse people you can ever imagine. Uh, and everything that they did for the, the buildup of their program was exactly what you're talking about of like, let's do stuff that doesn't expose us very much and like doesn't cost very much. And like, if it goes haywire, it's like not that big of a deal. And so they just laid out like, they, they, the first Warby Parker's quote unquote store was in, um, was like on a bus because they could get it for free. And so, and like it, they didn't need to like super brand it or anything. It was just like, let's see what happens if people come into a space to buy Warby Parker glasses. Um, and that's what they were testing. So they didn't buy a whole bunch of stores. They didn't buy one store. They like found a bus and were like, let's try what this looks like. And so I, I think you're, you're nailing it. It's like, what's the small, not scary thing that we can do that gives us actionable data for what the next thing is. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ben. Mm-hmm. And Ben, I feel like it, it kind of goes back to your analogy about the stacking blocks. Mm-hmm. And there's this um, really important balancing act there of if, uh, to Gary's point, if you show someone the top of the stack, they're going to say, whoa, 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 that's way too far away. We're not ready for that yet. Why are you even talking about it? But if you show them one block, they say, well, that's that doesn't get us anywhere. Like what is, Mm -hmm. so it's this, it's this constant, how many blocks are we showing to different audiences and how can we get people to see the vision without being scared and also not think that these tiny pilots are, are trivial. Mm -hmm. No, it's a great point. And I think, yeah, it, one is just like, again, rigorous empathy with these different audiences and what's going to resonate with them. How much evidence do you need to have before you go in front of this person? Versus how much evidence do you need to have before you go in front of this person? And I think, yeah, figuring out who your people who are who are like, let's play in the sandbox versus the people who are like, look, it's either a rocket ship or it's nothing. Um, like identify using your rigorous empathy, even in your own organization can help you to identify who are the people to do the small building block things with. And then who are the people to bring the thing that looks like the thing that all it is is a bunch of the small building blocks and be like, this is all the evidence. It works. Let's go. I love that. Anybody else in the, in the chat? I know Joshua and Leo also had some comments, so feel free to, to open dialogue here. Ben, one of the things I think about a lot in um, during the Innovation Summit, somebody said this to me. He said, I finally get what you're doing. You've thrown us in the deep end, but I realize you are around so you can pull us out if need be. Um, and so I ponder that a lot because in, to some extent, like you said, the thing about applied learning you have to get to that place of, you have to be invested in your problem, but also you don't want people to feel like, because I'm going back to the, I care about you Mm -hmm. piece. You don't want people to feel like you truly have thrown them in the deep end. So um, how do you think about that balancing act? Because it's something I ponder nearly daily. Mm. No, it's a really interesting question. And I think in some ways, my context is an advantage because like students are at a university to learn. And so, and they're at a stage in their lives where like 
the goal is to learn. And many of them very much embrace that they don't know everything. Um, and so I can kind of cheat a little bit because that's the like stated expectation of my audience. Um, but even, even for students, um, especially at a place like Emory, where you get into Emory because you were really good at not failing. Um, and so we do run into to times where I'll ask a student, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you're saying you're going to do that thing in a month. What could you do this week? They're like, well, nothing. Like I, and I'm like, no, you can definitely do something this week. What would it be? Even if it's not perfect. Um, but I think it is. Um, and like, I definitely saw this in the innovation summit. I, I do think it's about communicating that there is structure here and that tension of like, we don't know where this is going to go, but we know how to get places. Um, and being transparent around, we're not making this up as we go. We have different kinds of processes that are backed by different kinds of evidence um, and like helping people to feel comfortable as much as possible with the process even if they don't feel comfortable or know what the outcome is going to be, I think is really helpful. Um, that's why like um, in, in this talk, you probably noticed me like saying a bunch of people's names and referencing things. Um, there are two things happening there. One, like I don't want to plagiarize, but also I think communicating that I'm not making all of this up like other people have done research that shows things that I am now telling you, I think actually helps to kind of create that. I can trust you. You, you are asking me to do something that's hard, but you're not asking me to do something that's arbitrarily hard or totally made up because you're a weird person who likes to make people do hard things. Um, I, I think being like upfront with what our sources are I think helps people it's transparency and helps people feel more comfortable with the strange things that we are asking them to do. And I think there's a really interesting interpersonal kind of element to that because some of these teams that you're, you're working with, um, you know them and they trust you and it's a lot easier to kind of bridge that gap and lower that barrier. But whenever you're working with people for the first time, it, it really comes down to that relationship and how quickly you can develop that trust. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you want to touch on your methods for developing that trust quickly, that would be really interesting because I think it's something that we all, we all deal with on this call. No, I think, um, I think for me, the way that I tried to build trust is actually with that rigorous empathy. Um, and before I start, talking about what I think or what I find interesting or what my solutions are. I try to be really intentional about both understanding what matters to the person I'm sitting across from um, and communicating that I understand what matters to the person that I'm sitting across from. And I, I think that, um, yeah, building trust is the way I try to do it is by, is through empathy. And it's like, people will trust me because they feel like I understand what matters to them um, and what's important to them and what they're trying to do. And I think sort of 
this is like very transactional way to think about it, but I think it's a helpful metaphor. It's like every question I ask is basically like a deposit in the like bank account of our relationship. Any idea that I pitch or solution is making a withdrawal from that account. Some, sometimes it goes right back in because it's a good suggestion, but like I tried to think about, okay, it, like, have we put enough into this account of trust and empathy and information for me to make a withdrawal? Or do I actually need to keep making deposits into this account before I can make a withdrawal? Um, and so, yeah, I think that like rigorous empathy piece and, and trying to be curious um, is a good way to build trust. Um, uh, I forget his first name. There's a really great book um, written by a guy named Maester called Managing the Professional Services Firm. And then he wrote a second book called The Trusted Advisor. And in both of those books, one of the things he said that I loved is when you are first meeting a client, someone to coach, whatever, uh, if you are talking, you are losing. And, and so I, I try to practice that of like, I want you to talk. I want you to tell me what matters to you. I want you to tell me what you are trying to do. So that way, when it, I do finally have something to say, I feel like that trust is built because you, you know that what you're saying matters to me, or you know that what I'm saying, like you matter to me. And so when I'm talking, it's clear that what I'm saying is trying to connect with you and actually make a difference to something that matters to you. I love that. I don't know if you just came up with that bank example, but that <laughs> I did not. That's actually from a, an, a former boss of mine uh, who, who would talk about, especially long-term relationships and like long-term like partnerships and thinking about, yeah, what's the status of our relational account? And what, what does that mean for the way that we're going to show up to this interaction? Yeah, it's a really nice metaphor. <laughs> also, Ben, we're going to have to come up with like a, a Ben's book list or something. <laughs> all the great recommendations I'm writing down. I'm scribbling Just down. follow me on Goodreads. I keep my Goodreads very up to date. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Ben, it also looks like we have a question from the chat from Diego. He said, in terms of innovation, how do you go about transforming it from a buzzword to actionable steps for the students? Sometimes we see that organizations need to be treated as a student that is learning, but is drawn to the work just because the word innovation is something everyone is using nowadays. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Um, so I... Um, I'm, I am interested in innovation writ large, sort of like in a buzzwordy way. But the reason that I'm interested in innovation um, is because uh, I'm an, actually an anxious person. And I think that the, the like most dangerous way the world can be is exactly as it is right now. And so for me, the safest thing to do is to innovate and try new stuff. Um, and so I am interested in innovation because it helps to solve a whole set of problems. And I think similarly, the way to move people from a buzzword interest in innovation is to connect innovation as a solution to a problem that a person actually cares about. So in other words, people don't really care about innovation. They care about the problems that innovation helps them to solve. Um, and, and I see this like 
with like workshops uh, or even like I have to fight this on my own. Like when I'm describing our programs, it's like, I want to say, I want to talk about, we're going to teach you this really cool innovation process. And then I'm like, no, <laughs> people in general don't care. I'm like, we're going like you have a problem that you want to solve, we're going to help you do that. It will use innovation process. And so I think that's a way to like move people away from the buzzword to like, yeah, but what's the thing that you actually want to do? Um, And how can innovation processes, mindsets, exercises, et cetera, how can those things help you solve the problem that you actually have? Sure. I feel like this is OSB story hour with Ben and it's delightful. (laughs) (laughs) It is delightful. Um, Ben, when we spoke, something that stuck out for me um, is, you know, looking at thinking of that matrix of radical candor um, and the area, particularly around challenging directly. Um, Mm. You said something that I really loved around you know, when, when you're in a space where it's safe to challenge each other's ideas directly, that conflict emerges, but through that conflict, you get to new values. I really mm. love that idea. And it feels like something that might resonate with the Orange Sparkle Ball group as well. Mm. Um, just wonder if you could speak a little bit about how you think about that, that mm. place of conflict and getting through that to something that's new and useful. Mm. Well, before I do that, I want to highlight something that you said when we were talking about that, that I really loved, which is um, talking about the conflict uh, is not creating conflict. It's acknowledging the conflict is already present. Right. And I think that was a really astute observation that you had, which is, yeah, we think about, oh, I don't, I don't want to cause conflict. I don't want to create conflict. It's like, no, the conflict's already here. We're just not talking about it. Um, and so, yeah, I really appreciate that insight. And I think, I think that's the appropriate frame for it. Um, so I, I think in conflict, there is an interesting, I think, uh, when it goes well, a couple of things can happen. One is, as you talked about, like the emergence of new values. Um, and so like recognizing coming to a place of like, we have a problem that our current way of working cannot help us to solve. Um, And we are going to need to develop new ways of working or thinking about our work um, that will help us to solve that problem. Um, And I think that is, can be really, really fantastic. But again, that's like, that's about people who really care about a particular problem and having a conflict over the way to solve that problem. You like realize that you've sort of come to the end of yourselves. and that something else is gonna to have to be added to the mix to get there. I think the other thing that can happen though, um, and I think this is, I would guess that this happens more often, is you find out that um, there are unstated values that are not being honored that are leading to apparent conflict. And it's, it's about um, unstated values and prioritization of values. Um, and I think it can be really, really helpful in conflict to actually like anchor in to state clearly, this is, as I'm thinking about this conflict, 
these are the values that I'm trying to hold in tension or, or that are animating me. Would you please tell me like what you, what's important to you in this, in this conference? And sometimes what you'll find is we have the same values. That's great. Cause then you're, you can talk to each other about, okay, we agree. We're trying to go here. Let's talk about why we think that's different. We're approaching that differently. Um, and then I think sometimes we find that just like the values that we have are not being honored by the way that we're currently doing work. And I think in some ways that can be the scarier conversation because it opens up, it demonstrates a rift between what really matters to us and what we're being asked to do at our job day in and day out. Sometimes that can be a beacon to new things um, because maybe that's an unstated um, sort of like cognitive dissonance value for the other person that you're talking to. And you can say, well, how do we bring our values and our work more in line with each other? Um, Sometimes that means finding other venues to exercise those values through your work. Uh, And that can look a lot of different ways. But um, so, yeah, but I think like one, acknowledging that the conflict is already there. You're just not talking about it. Um, And then being explicit about these are my values as I think about this situation. Tell me what matters to you about the situation. What are your concerns? What are you trying to accomplish? And like, and keep continue to anchor there. Um, like if you feel yourself falling apart and pulling away, basically asking, reminding ourselves, what are the things that actually do hold us together in this work? And how do we keep coming back to those things? I think it's super helpful. It, and it, it brings to mind um, some techniques used in what's what's considered nonviolent communication, ways of like digging beneath the operating mm-hmm. principles so that you can really see where you actually are thinking along the same lines and using different words to approach a shared problem. Um, so I think it's, it's really helpful and insightful as I think about things like that. So I think your program is set up in a way so that you might have these natural checkpoints with students so that you're thinking about like, are we progressing along our values? You know, are, are we doing what we set out to do? Are we learning? Are you learning, you know, the principles that you thought you'd be learning? Um, Curious, and this might not be within your area of expertise, Megan and Ashley and team, maybe you guys see this with corporates more, you know, as as you get into the day-to-day and the feeling of a bit of conflict starts to build up around, you know, the way that a team is operating, you know, how how would you set the stage for having that values conversation Mm. about pulling up and saying, you know, we need to, we need to pick our heads up from the status meeting and the budget meeting. And, you know, you set that up quarterly, like, would you, Mm. you know, just put it on a calendar ad hoc and be that person that calls it out. I mean, I'm likely to be that person. Then maybe the lesson for innovators out there, budding innovators out there is that anxiety is the breeding ground for greatness. Cause I too <laughs> think that, <laughs> think that as a, a, an anxious person and wanting to see things change and get things done, I'd much rather call out our problem mm-hmm. than continue to live with it. And like, maybe that's how we get to that next, you, um, you, you, you set your, your conversation up for the innovation summit is the, the field beyond rightness, right, wrong, right doing and wrongdoing. Yeah. Um, that there is this idea of, um, this place where we can meet and it, we don't need to be right or wrong. We just want to move forward. Mm-hmm. That's a long winded way to say like, at what intervals do you think are useful to kind of check in on that values? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I, um, this is something that like, 
I am, am frankly like not awesome at this is in some ways like why I, with the internship where I have like a lot of control, I do set it up in a very structured way so that I don't have to be the one to put a, the calendar meeting out of the blue on people's calendars to talk about values. I'm like, I'm just going to build it so that that just happens so that by making it, by making it structured and less organic and less ad hoc, that makes it less anxiety inducing for me. And so um, that's how I handle that in the areas where like I have influence to be able to structure those check-ins. Um, in terms of like, if you don't have that luxury, um, I think um, I do find the Rumi quote that you mentioned very, very helpful and thinking about how I frame those conversations. So the, the Rumi quote is, um, there is a field out beyond ideas of right doing and wrongdoing. I will meet you there. And I, I find it helpful to frame my conversations about a breakdown in values in that way of, I want to bracket out right doing and wrong doing. And I would like to meet the other person in a place where we have bracketed out who is right and who is wrong. And starting from a place of observation, basically like I am observing or, um, this is one that I know Brene Brown likes to use of like um, the story I am telling myself is. And so you're immediately, you're not talking about right doing or wrong doing. You're like totally subjectivizing. It's like, this is the story I'm telling myself. And I'll even say like, I may be totally wrong and misinterpreting all of this, but here's what I am seeing. What are you seeing? Um, and again, it's not necessarily about right or wrong. It's just like, what is the other person seeing? Um, and starting a conversation there is what I find most helpful for me. I would be super, again, I, I'm an anxious person and conflict is one of the things that makes me anxious. Uh, and so I like to create structure uh, in order to structure conflict to maximize productiveness and lower my anxiety. Uh, but I would be very interested, like you, Tiffany, to hear from any of the Orange Sparkle Ball folks, uh, what are the ways that they have approached this as well? It's a great question. I think we're all looking at each other like, who's going to go first? And also, what are you going to say? Um, <laughs> yes, you can go. Uh, well, I was just going to say first, I dropped into the chat. I think that that Tiffany, firstly, your your question was just a really good question. And I think, Ben, your your point of, of rigorous empathy, but also asking people what their values are is something that we do, but I've never heard it said in quite that way before. Because I think that even within a team, people are answering to different um, different drivers. So whether that's in a bigger organization, you might be answering to the leadership that controls your budget, or you might be answering to the team that you're actually trying to help solve a problem. And those look like very different intrinsic motivations when you're talking about how to run a project. So I think that that inherently makes for conflict in how you're talking about what you're doing, what you're choosing to do, which projects you're, you're talking about tackling in what order. I think all of those motivations play a role and just asking why, why have you decided to do it in this way is, is again, something that we do, but I don't think that I've ever thought about intentionally doing it to solve that conflict that you're having between someone, someone else. The other thing that I, in addition to 
what Ashley said, the thing that I think about all the time is there's also, so there's the, who do you answer to? There's the, you're on different teams, maybe in a cross-functional group, but then there's the, what type of reward system does, does each individual person respond to? What's going on with them? Are they up for a promotion? You know, there's all this kind of other stuff so what provides value, even in a team that's all supposed to be aligned on meeting one goal, what is providing value to each of the individuals in that team may be very different. So one of the things that we talk about a lot is value and just talk about it as um, pretty matter of fact. So, okay, let's think about what is providing value here? What's really important to you know, that person or that team member? And so it's a, it's a non, uh, it's not about judging why that provides value It's just about surfacing where the value in the entire system is. And sometimes that allows it not to be about, we want to do it this way, or we want to do it this way. It's just about figuring out how do we do it in a way that actually meets the needs of all these really nuanced needs that are in this group. And I would say one of the challenges that that I would say the, the industry faces in, in general is, and I don't know if Tiffany, you would agree with this, but people have to be able to verbalize what their motivation is. They have to know, they have to have the self-reflection, both individually as a, as a person, but also as a team, you have to, you have to be able to reflect on that in order to continue to move things forward. That's a really good point, Ashley. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that oftentimes some of the teams that I'm working with are so heads down on whatever it is that, you know, a, a top down mandate that they're executing against that they can't pull up. And it, you know, to Megan's point, they're not motivated to pull up because that's not how they're being measured. You know, so I'm in a, a privileged position to get to think about the way the, both the processes and the substance of what we as an organization are working on long-term every day. Most people don't have that luxury that they, you know, they've received some sort of measures against which they need to perform. Um, and that's what they're motivated by, you know? And so Ashley, to your point, you know, the being reflection is a privilege for some um, of your stakeholders and, you know, having them set aside time to go over values might be a tough sell sometimes. I do. I, I so agree. Like, yeah, I was thinking about a similar thing of like, I feel like that there might be folks not on, not on this podcast, but people on this podcast recording who they talk to, who would say there is not enough time to do all this rigorous empathy, psychological safety values, kind of stuff. And I think that the, the pushback I would give to that is um, there. There's a. Uh, this is rare for me to quote like a military phrase, but the there is a military phrase that is uh, that slow is smooth and smooth is fast, um, and I find that really helpful for thinking about these kinds of processes. Of sure, it's slow, but it makes everything run smoothly which at the end of the day will end up being the faster way to do it. And so it's like, 
you could compare sort of like a traditional waterfall uh, design process of like, we know we're going to build, we're just going to build it. It's a matter of getting the Gantt chart right and executing. And let's say that takes four months. And then let's say the human-centered design way of doing the exact same thing takes six months. Well, if you throw the four-month thing in the dumpster and you get to the six-month thing that you did, you get to build on in the future, which one was faster? Um, And so, yeah, I think it's like thinking about what what actually fast means and what like an efficient use of time means. Sometimes it's helpful to reframe that of like, yeah, it will take maybe less time, but we'll have to throw out more of it and there will be more hiccups than doing something that on paper looks like it will take more time, but will be more valuable. And at the end of the day, will actually take less time. Yeah, or perhaps worse than throwing the four-month waterfall thing in the dumpster, pushing it at your customers or your community for a year after that, them not getting it. And then there's you've you've devalued your you know perspective on what they need and want. Mm-hmm. And you know, to your point about that the relationship like a, a bank deposit, um, you wasted the time and the goodwill that you had with that group. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, early in the conversation, I, I I was thinking about, you know, you, you come to this from a perspective of um, nonprofit and, you know, community innovation, but the, and, and so there might be some that are hesitant to apply that to a corporate innovation mindset, but I think it's even more important to apply that rigorous empathy. You and I talked about, we could build anything, but should we? Mm-hmm. Um, and that it makes dollars and cents sense to apply rigorous empathy up front and understand your customers and your audience and what it is that you're solving for them from a revenue standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there it it both feels good and feels like the right thing to do to align your values with those the community that you're serving and makes monetary sense. <laughs> Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And I like I think about like your role, Tiffany, and you like you are in a forefront, we can build anything kind of place. Like what y'all are working on is very much like the leading edge of a lot of technology that's going to make a big difference for a lot of people. And you have the resources to build it. And the question that matters is, okay, well, what should we build? <laughs> like what is actually going to add add value to lots of people make their lives better because the kind of stuff that y'all are rolling out is stuff that people use every single day. Like they, they touch it and it affects them every single day. And so, yeah, leading with that empathy of like, what's actually going to make humans lives better. Um, I think it's just, it's like, it's not a nice question to ask or a strategic question. Like it's an essential question to ask for like where we are as humans. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not even quite delving into the social impact ramifications of that. Should we build something that may have long lasting effects on our society, which is a whole nother ball of yarn. Uh, I feel like we could do this all day um, because it's, it's so rewarding. And uh, so many of us are engaged in the same space and, 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 you know, Megan and I talk about this sometimes being an innovation therapy. Those of us that are engaged in innovation need to talk to each other on the regular to kind of get that reassurance that we're, you know, doing the right things, fighting the good fight. And Ben, Mm -hmm. you're so good at being able to provide that 
the framework for thinking about that and that kind of reassurance. But actually, I imagine we should probably start wrapping up. What say you? <laughs> Absolutely. I thank you so much, Ben. This has been amazing. And your insights have been have been great. Like like Tiffany said, we could continue to talk for hours, I'm sure. But uh, we we really appreciate you um, taking the time and and for joining us. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate being asked really, really great questions that allowed me to appear insightful. So Tiffany, thanks so much for being an amazing conversation partner and drawing things out of me. I really appreciate it.